Starring Bela Day in... But, Ma, that's my favorite movie. Oh, well, all right. But don't you spend too much time in front of that TV. Do you hear me? Yes, Ma. Hello, and welcome to another episode of But Ma, That's My Favorite Movie. And I am your host, B. Day. Now, you already know what I got to do. First and foremost, let me thank my listeners. I want to thank all of my listeners. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for coming on the side, geeking out with me about movies. You're a real one, period. And if you're a new listener, then welcome to the dark side. I mean, to the side where we discuss movies more than critiquing them. Because who am I to judge someone's art? I, I'd like to tell you about a movie and the things I enjoy about them. And, you know, maybe sprinkle in, you know, a few things here and there about something that maybe didn't make sense or I didn't like that very much or this character didn't, you know, wow me or maybe it did, something did bore me. But I really like to keep it on more of the positive things about movies instead of just tearing it apart because there's uh, other people doing that out there and um, they're way better at it than me. But I just like talking about it like a regular conversation. Hey, you know, there's this movie. This is what it's about. Blah, 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 blah. Right now, I pretty much sum up what my dad told me and I've kind of lived by this ever since he ever since he said it so basically I'm gonna sum this up because this is not the exact words but um because we were talking about movies one time and he's basically just saying like they're just movies like the whole purpose is to entertain so we should just enjoy them and not take them so seriously And dad, when you listen to this episode, let me know if I quoted you right, because that stuck with me because I remember I was so like this and that by movies. Like if if we're in a society where we always have to have an opinion and we mostly lean towards the negative stuff, like what I didn't like versus what we did like and just enjoying stuff instead of feeling like we have to have an opinion on it, if that makes sense. And so when he said that, that stuck with me and I thought, hmm. I like that premise and don't get me wrong. I have moments where I am nitpicky about movies or to be honest, a lot of the time it's not that I'm saying like movies are terrible. I just don't get wowed with movies as much um, because of just the way things have been put out recently and stuff. So I, I don't, but I digress. So back to what I was saying. So, you know, if you are the first time listener, thanks for coming by. And you are definitely in for a treat that I hope will keep you coming back for more. All right. So this title of this episode is But Ma, that's Bela Day's favorite movie. Okay, so my birthday was this past Tuesday, which was February 2nd, aka Groundhog's Day. And I wanted to talk about movies that I love. No, actually, I'll take that. I wanted to talk about movies that are my actual favorites because I've mentioned before, even though in the title it's But Ma, that's my favorite movie. Most of the movies I talk about are movies that I love and I enjoy, but I have actual like favorite movies that I would recommend to anyone to watch. Um, and so I wanted to kick off this little series talking about my actual, actual favorite movies. I think I only have like five or six like actual favorites, but I love a bunch. So yeah, I felt it would be super appropriate to just spend this week since it was my birthday week talking about movies that are my favorite. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and start with the first movie here and lights, camera, Action. We are not groupies. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We are here because of the music. We inspire the music. We are band-aids. And that quote is by the character Penny Lane, who's played by Kate Hudson. Now, this movie was released September 22nd, 2000. 
It was directed and written by Cameron Crowe, who also um, directed We Bought a Zoo, Vanilla Sky, and Jerry Maguire. And he actually wrote Jerry Maguire and Vanilla Sky. And that's two Tom Cruise movies. So I thought that was super interesting because, to be honest, I did not know that he actually directed Jerry Maguire because Jerry Maguire, that's like, I feel like one of the most known movie titles, like everyone knows, even if you've never watched that movie, you've heard that title or you remember the line from Cuba, Cuba Gooding's uh, Jr.'s character, show me the money. I've never seen it. That's on my list to watch, but I had no idea that he actually directed and wrote that movie. So that's super dope. All right. Um, let's go ahead and get into the summary here. So in the beginning, we have entered into a 1969 where we get introduced to William, who is younger Will, because we would later see, you know, Will that's going to be in the rest of the movie, but we get to see the younger version, who is played by Michael Angarino. And his mom, Elaine, is played by Frances McDermott. And they are out and about. And they're discussing the book To Kill a Mockingbird. And even though William is so young, he's able to keep up the conversation with his mother. And and they're talking about the different characters, what they love about them. And, you know, just discussing the book. So you can tell Elaine has done a very good job by keeping her son knowledgeable, right? With books. Because, you know, normally kids when they're younger, they're not, they're into video games and, you know, playing around. But the fact that he knows about, you know, classic book, he's able to hold a conversation with his mom. It says a lot about this, this boy that this is our first impression of him. And it says a lot about his, who he is right now. The next scene, we get introduced to Anita, who's played by Zoe Deschanel, who is a teenager and is the complete opposite of William. Um, she is just getting home. And before she goes inside, she ends up like smelling her breath. And you're at first assuming that maybe she's been drinking and she's trying to, you know, trying to find a way to hide it. Right now, when she goes inside, her mom instantly, you know, like, cause the mom was in the kitchen cooking with William and she like runs in front of Anita's path before Anita can, you know, rush to her room. Cause that's what she was trying to do. And she's like asking her, you know, if she wants, you know, something to eat and you know, Anita's like, no, no, I'm good. And then Elaine is like, you've been kissing, haven't you? And at first she is denying it and she does keep denying it. And you can obviously tell she's lying, but she's really trying to convince her mom otherwise by saying like, no, no, I haven't. Um, and then she notices that Anita is hiding something in her jacket. And so Elaine asks her what it is. Anita ends up pulling out a record and you know, it's a rock and roll record. And you could tell instantly that Elaine is not, is not feeling any rock and roll being played in her house. And so this is the one moment where we learn that about how Elaine is pretty much with her kids. And especially with Anita, since she's the oldest one, she has truly realized how sheltered her mom has tried to make her be uh, and make William be as well. Um, because she's like basically kind of going into this rant and she's just like, you know, first it was you know white flour then it was bacon and we freaking you know we have Christmas in September because you know that's when they don't market it you know in the commercials and so you can tell that basically Elaine is she's shielding her children and she's going to teach them what she has grown to learn you know she wants her kids to eat healthy she wants her kids to do things right and of course you always have that one kid that ends up rebelling and that's Anita. Um, and so it, it it's, it's a, there's a lot of ten, tension between Anita and Elaine, but, uh, it's a much smoother relationship between William and Elaine. So there's, there's a different dynamic between both of them. And then at one point, William ends up finding out that he because he's thinking he's 12 because she's told him he's 12 and he's in middle school and all the kids look much older than him and he's thinking okay I'm just a year behind that's why I look like this and um, it gets revealed that he's actually 11 and he actually started preschool at five and he skipped fifth grade so this upsets him 
But Elaine tries to flip it and tell her, tell him that basically you could take advantage of being younger than your peers because when you graduate, you're going to have the freedom to do whatever you want before you actually have to go to college because ultimately she wants him to go to college. Um, and so she tells him, like, you can do whatever you want. You can travel. You can, you know, just do whatever your little heart desires. And um, you, when, when she's encouraging William to do whatever he wants, you can see very clearly that this isn't, this isn't the same, this isn't the same dynamic she has with her daughter. She doesn't really believe in her, I guess, to do well in life. Um, like she's almost like already given up on her, I guess, because she has re- rebelled against her. So she's just over it. Um, and, and so that makes Anita not feel wanted by her mother. It makes her feel unloved because you could tell she longs for that good relationship with her mom. But since the mom is kind of given up and she's pouring all of herself into William, that it's just caused a strain between them. And so Anita actually ends up moving out of the house and she ends up, you know, running off with her boyfriend and she wants to become a stewardess. And Anita actually ends up leaving behind her records for her brother. And she's just like, basically, these are going to change your life. And she doesn't, she makes sure her, her mom doesn't hear her when she's about to leave. And she, you know, whispers that to her brother. And so once William here's those records. It definitely changes his life because what ends up happening is once he does get older, he wants to become a rock journalist. So we end up moving forward to, so we were in 69. Now we're going to 73 where now he's about 15 and um, William is now played by Patrick Fugit. And he's very inspired by this magazine called Cream. And basically, he ends up sending article that he's written to the editor, uh, editor-in-chief, I believe, named Lester Bangs, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he ends up actually meeting up with Lester. And Lester has read his articles. He thinks he's great. But he does try to conv- convince him not to do it because he knows how these musicians are. And he sees how sweet and innocent looking, you know, William is. And so he's basically trying to let him know, like, these dudes, they're going to take advantage of you. They're going to want you to, you know, say what they want people to know about them, not like the truth of who they are. So they're going to try to manipulate you. They're going to try to be your friend, but you can't befriend them. And, and and he's going by how young he is, how youthful, how innocent he looks. And he just knows that these rock stars would just like tear him apart. But as you know, he's trying to convince him. Otherwise, William makes it very clear. He's not going anywhere. So then Lester's like, okay, well, here's the thing. Go ahead, you know, write a thousand words on Black Sabbath. And um, pretty much his main advice that he tells him is like, if you're going to go ahead with this, make sure you stay honest. Like no matter what, be honest to yourself. Be honest to the craft. Do not let these rock stars influence you. And so, you know, William's excited because he's like, oh, my God, I finally get my chance to kind of, you know, do what I want to do. And so he goes to the concert and he has issues getting in initially because he's not on the list. So he ends up meeting these groupies who call themselves the Band-Aids, which is from the quote that I did at the beginning. And okay, these Band-Aids consist of Estrella Star, who's played by Bujo Phillips. We have Sapphire played by Feruza Balk, and we have Polexia Aphrodisia played by Anna Paquin, and we have Penny Lane played by Kate Hudson. And they call themselves the Band-Aids because they don't sleep with the band members, but they actually are there for the music. And they feel that they inspire it. Now, it's funny when they say this in the same breath as like Black Sabbath's car is like driving by them. They're just totally fangirling and stuff. And so it's like they're kind of still young, but they're trying to be mature at the same time. And it's just a funny dynamic. 
So anyways, the bandits end up getting inside. William is still left outside until the band Stillwater shows up and he introduces himself to the band. And initially they're like, aren't welcoming to him because he introduces himself as a writer for cream. And so basically they're like, you're the enemy. We're not going to talk to you. We don't have time to try to impress the critics. Like we only care about the fans and the music but what ends up impressing them about uh William is that he ends up showing his knowledge of their music and their individual talents he even calls them out by name right and so they're like oh okay we like this dude he actually knows who we are he's not like this snobby you know rock star well he's not this snobby rock and roll critic you know who's out for their necks just to you know write something bad about one you know thing that they do and so they end up inviting him backstage with them and the Stillwater consists of Jeff Beebe who's played by Jason Lee then we have Ed Valancourt played by John Fedovich we have Larry Fellows played by Mark Kozelik and we have Russell Hammond, who's played by Billy Curdup. And we can tell early on that Billy Curdup is like the star of the group. Normally the lead singer is the star, but um, Russell is actually the lead guitarist. And you can just tell by his looks, he he's the one, right? To me, the best example to describe that is if you've ever heard of the band fallout boy and patrick stump is the lead singer and pete wentz was the lead guitarist but when you think of fallout boy you think of pete wentz he was the star of the group and so that's what um stillwater was like so williams encounter ends up going very well with the band they end up meshing well with him um, because he, he ends up doing like a small interview before they go on. And then even after they play their set and, you know, he watches them play, everything is going good. They invite him to LA because they're like, Hey, we would like to talk to you more. And, um, William actually ends up lying to his mom because at one point, well, the same, in the same breath that they said, Hey, you know, come up to LA with us. Russell had told William about them staying in a hotel Um, and so William ends up lying to his mother saying he's going to a dance, but he really is going out to the hotel, which Penny came and picked him up and took him there. And you could tell this hotel is filled with all these different rock stars, all these different musicians and the groupers are there, the fans are there, and it's just a really good time. And so, um, not too long after that, um, William out of the blue ends up getting a call from Rolling Stone to write for them and they actually offer him a thousand bucks for three thousand words and they give him the option of who he wants to write about right and his first answer is Stillwater because he's you know like this up-and-coming band but in reality this is the only band that he's actually gotten um close to I guess you could say it's the only band that he has some rapport with there you go and so he's like yeah I could talk about them and so the editor or the guy who calls him is like oh yeah an expose about this upcoming you know band that's you know they're starting to you know get on the map people are starting to know their names so that's perfect and so he tells them like hey you need to go on tour with them make sure they don't pay for anything and it just sounds like the ideal the ideal job because this is what he wanted all along and now he's finally getting his chance so not he won't be writing for cream he's gonna write for rolling stone which rolling stone which is one of the biggest rock magazines so who wouldn't want to do that when you want to be a rock journalist now his mom and it's funny because his mom is actually super supportive of his dream even though she doesn't want him to do that she still supports him she drives him to the show she lets him go on tour and at first she doesn't want him to but she lets him and um she tells him like okay you go on tour with them but you better not miss you know more than one test you got to keep up with your grades you still got to do your homework so you still have to do everything you do normally but you know that's the only way I'm gonna let you go on the road and so basically he ends up going on the road going on this adventure with Stillwater dealing with the band-aids mainly Penny Lane 
And he's going to end up being taught lessons that couldn't ever be taught by his mom, right? And this movie is super, super special to me. I love this movie. I love it because it just has like that real, it has that 70s rock star vibe. And, you know, when you look at bands like in the 70s and the 80s, like, you know, that was some real rock and it was so raw and it was real and it was good music and just the style. And so it's very nostalgic. Well, it's nostalgic for me at a time that I wish I could possibly jump in, you know? And, um, you know, I, I definitely have a crush on freaking Billy Curtup's character, Russell. Like, I, and I think that's, <laughs> I'm real biased, y'all. He is absolutely beautiful in this movie. So my ass is like, ooh, if I can jump into any movie and, and, and be able to interact with any character from any movie, it would, it would be almost famous hands down and it's just a great movie the characters it's it's a great dynamic I love the story to me it's just it's not like a typical story like it's just to me it's different it flows differently uh it's it's not to me it's just not typical at all nothing about this movie is typical or like yeah I've seen this before like it's boring or you know, it's just another movie that, you know, another version of a movie that's already been out. So I, I love, I absolutely love this movie. And this is definitely a movie I have to be in a mood to watch. I'll be honest. It is, a, in a, I have to be in a mood to watch it. But, but when I turn the movie on, I'm, I'm into it. It sucks me in immediately. So let's go over this cast we have here. So we have Billy Curtup, who plays Russell Hammond. He was in Big Fish and The Good Shepherd. We have Frances McDermott, who plays Elaine Miller. She was in Fargo and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. We have Kate Hudson, who plays Penny Lane. She was in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and Bride Wars. Jason Lee, who plays Jeff Beebe, was in Chasing Amy and Vanilla Sky. We have... Patrick Fugget, who plays uh, William Miller. He was in Gone Girl and Risk Cutters, A Love Story. Zoe Deschanel, who plays Anita Miller. She was in A, a New Girl and 500 Days of Summer. We have Michael A. I'm, I'm just not going to butcher that name. Who plays young William. He was in Sky High and The Forbidden Kingdom. We have Anna Paquin who plays Polexia Aphrodisia. Who was in the True Blood series and X-Men in 2000. We have Ferzua Balk who plays Sapphire. She was in The Craft and Waterboy. And The Craft was the movie I did in the episode. But Ma, that's my favorite I'm trying to think, did I do two movie or witchy movie? No, witchy movie. It was in the witchy movie episode. Then we have Noah Taylor who plays Dick Roswell. He was in the Life Aquatic and Vanilla Sky. Okay, you're going to see a pattern here. Then we have John uh, Fedovich who plays Ed Valencourt. He was in Vanilla Sky and Shop Girl. Then we have Mark Kay who plays Larry Fellows. He was in Vanilla Sky and Youth. We have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Lester Bangs, who was in Capote, Doubt, and Charlie Wilson's War. R.I.P. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Then we have Liz Stuber, who plays Leslie. She was in White Olander in The Village. And then we had Jimmy Fallon, who plays Dennis Hope. Of course, he's the talk show host of The Jimmy Fallon Show. He was also in movies like Fever Pitch and Taxi. All right, so getting into some some behind-the-scenes information. Credit to my favorite, favorite site, IMDB. Okay, that is my site. To be honest, I go there pretty much every day or every other day. Mostly every day. Like once a day, I'm getting on IMDB for something. Um, So yeah, I got to give it credit to them for all the information that I get because they're just so convenient. They are, oh, they're the best site ever. Okay. So the first thing we got here, the, this film is director Cameron Crowe's semi-autobiographical account 
of life as a young Rolling Stone reporter. So the actual group Crow first toured with was the Allman Brothers Band, and Greg Allman distrusted him and kept asking if he was a narc. Now, Crow was in a near-fatal plane crash while traveling with The Who, and the character Russell Hammond is based on Glenn Frey of The Eagles. So this movie was very much a mixture of his different experiences while working with different bands. Um, but he just created a story around one band. Um, we also have that basically most films have music budgets of less than 1.5 million because believe it or not, adding music licensed music to your movie is super expensive. But this film featured over 50 songs with a music budget of 3.5 million. Holy crap. And that was just the music portion, not including what they pay the actors, not including, you know, locations, not including everything else that's, you know, budgeted into a movie. So that's insane. Now, according to Cameron Crowe, he sent the script around town to see if he could get anyone to respond to it. Steven Spielberg, founder of DreamWorks, read Crow's 172-page script over the weekend and called Crow on Monday saying, direct every word. And Crow said he filmed almost all of the script. So when you get Steven Spielberg telling you that everything you wrote in the script is gold, that all of it needs to be filmed, then you film the whole damn movie, okay? Um, there actually was a band called Stillwater in the 70s, though the band depicted in the film is not them. They agreed to the use of their name after reading the script. So that's super tight that they let them use their name and the fact that they even, you know, had respect enough to go to this band to say, hey, this is, you know, a fictional name I'm using. I know it's your name. It has no relationship to you, but is it okay if we use it? So that that was super uh, respectful for him to do that because some people won't even do that. Uh, the roles of Russell Hammond and Penny Lane were originally written for Brad Pitt and Sarah Poli, respectively, but Poli dropped out to work on her own project, the low-budget Canadian movie, The Law of Enclosures, which came out in 2000. Now, according to Crow, Pitt worked with Crow for months before finally admitting, I just don't get it enough to do it. And then Kate Hudson was originally cast as William's sister. So whenever all of that kind of fell through, they said, yeah, we're going to bump you up to Penny Lane instead. Now, Mark Marin, he has a small part in this movie where he yells the line, lock the gates, a sound clip he uses to open his WTF podcast. Now, I when I was watching this movie again, I noticed his voice sounded familiar and it's because I watched this show called glow and, um, the, his, there's a character that, um, Mark Marin plays where he, he gets together. Uh, well, he produces like this show, you know, he's like the director of the show and he gets like all these misfit women who do the, this wrestling show. And when I heard his voice, I was like, Ooh, that sounds familiar. And I was like, is that him? And then when I was going over behind the scenes information, I go, Oh my God, really? So I figured it, I knew it was him and I absolutely love him. Um, so that was super cool. Now, Elijah Wood screen tested for the role of William. Now, they have listed, you know, different actors and actresses that could have played this person, you know, auditioned to play this person, so on and so forth. But when I saw the Elijah Wood piece, I said, I could totally, to be honest, a lot of the people that could have been in this movie, I felt like would have been a good fit. Because sometimes when you have a movie, you're like, nope, no, no one else could have played that part, but the actress or actor who played it. But to be honest, I saw some people where I said, dang, yeah, I could have saw them being in it as well. Um, another person, Christina Ritchie auditioned to play Penny Lane and came close to winning the role. I could definitely see Christina Ritchie playing, um, Penny Lane for sure. For sure. Uh, 
Now, DreamWorks Pictures was originally going to be the sole distributor, but weeks before release, they sold the international rights to Sony due to budget concerns. Now, normally when I'm thinking of like DreamWorks movies, I'm mostly thinking of like the different animations and stuff that we've come to know DreamWorks of making. So when I realized they were a part of making this movie or distributor for this movie, I said, hmm, that is very interesting. And I thought y'all would think that was interesting as well for, you know, the type of film this movie is. And this movie, it has my heart. Almost Famous has my heart. I love this movie. I 10-10 recommend this movie. Okay. All right. So the next movie I got here, well, let's go ahead and get into this quote. Light, camera, action. The big deal, as I said, no TV on a school night, damn it. The Knicks got a job. You need an education. Boy, I would throw this idiot box out the window. That quote is by Carolyn, who is played by Alfre Woodard, the queen, okay? This movie, which we're going to talk about, is Crooklyn, was released on May 13th, 1994. It was directed by Spike Lee, who also directed the movie we talked about in the But Ma, That's My Favorite, Socially Conscious Movie, Part Dos. I think it was part two, which was when we talked about Do the Right Thing. He's also written, directed Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, and so many other black classic movies. Um, and let's go ahead and get into the summary. Now, this one's going to be a little different because this movie isn't your typical, typical movie. But let me just go ahead and get into it. Um, to be honest, I'm going to be doing more of critiquing of this movie. Um, but like I said, I'm critiquing it to tell you why I love this movie so much. Okay. All right. So... I love the intro of this movie because it has a extremely nostalgic vibe to it. Now, if you were born before the 2000s, then you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, it basically showcases what the neighborhood is like, um, where everyone is outside doing something. We have adults out there. We have kids of all ages out there. Um, so the adults are either sitting outside relaxing or mingling with their neighbors or their friends. Then you have some that are playing games like dominoes or cards. And then we have these kids playing games like hopscotch, freeze, different, you know, hand games, chalk games, playing tag, variations of baseball, also playing with baseball cards. And I'm so upset because you know, I wasn't born in the seventies. So a lot of like the chalk games that they did or just different ones they showed in the beginning. I have no idea what the names are. And I was trying to like do a little bit of research on it and I had a hard time figuring out what it was. So any of my seventies babies, possibly eighties babies, if you've seen the beginning of Crooklyn and you can identify those games, please comment and let me know because I would love, love, love to know those. Now, um, we even have kids that are outside getting their hair done. There's like two kids making out under one of the brownstone stairs while other kids are like watching and like all or like joking about it. And basically in this neighborhood, we are going to focus on this one family that's their name is the Carmichaels. Okay. That consists of the mom whose name is Carolyn. And that's the same name as, that my Nana had. Um, and, and she's played by Alfre Woodard. We have the dad who plays Woody or <laughs> the dad named Woody, who's played by Delroy Lindo. We have, um, going into the kids, we have, so there's five of them, five little regrets. We have Clinton played by Carlton Williams, Wendell played by Sharif Rashid. We have Joseph played by T.M. T. Mach Washington. We have Nate played by Christopher Knowings and we have Troy played by Zelda Harris. Now this is a coming of age story about Troy and her family dynamic while living in Brooklyn. Now Carolyn is a school teacher who was having to help carry the financial burden while balancing career and home while her husband Woody is a struggling musician trying to get his career off the ground. So the first impression we get of the family is when it's dinner time and they all get together at the table to eat. 
Now, Troy is the only girl in her, you know, family amongst her siblings, and she has four brothers. Now, she is just as tough as them and can hold her ground. Now, at this dinner table, we see the normal dynamic of siblings, you know, bickering, you know, going through the usual, picking on each other, so on and so forth. And, um along with the relationship that they have with their parents. And very early on, we we see how the mom is and we see how the dad is. And I'm going to get into that. Um, But first, as they're sitting at the table, at one point, as they're beginning to eat, um, the neighbor is playing their music next door very loudly. And this upsets Woody because not only do they hate his music, but they also hate the smell of his house due to all of the dogs that he has, that it's very clear that he doesn't really pick up pick up after them often so it creates a smell and so they are just super super annoyed with their neighbor now um getting into the parents and their and and who they are so okay we have carolyn right who she is the one who lays down the law in the house okay she lets them know what she wants done when she wants it done how she wants it done and that you're not going to run over me, right? Like, I am in, in charge of this. And then we have Woody, the dad, who's more lenient. He's the one that the kids gravitate to, who the the kids feel like they can come to because they know that he's going to let them get away with a lot more stuff. And this basically causes tension between the parents because of their difference in their parenting. And and it's a lot. I mean, there's five kids, right? And of course, you know, everyone's going to love the parent that's nice, that doesn't yell at them, that doesn't make them do chores. And you're, you're not, you're not, and you're, and you're not going to be able to stand the parent that's going to make you do stuff, right? Because that's just how it is when you're a kid. So, um, the mom makes it very clear to them at, while they're at the dinner table that pretty much she's going to be going out to their father's show because like I mentioned, he's a musician and that she wants the house clean. Okay. And, um, of course the kids are kind of like moaning and groaning about it, but she's like, yo, y'all going to clean up this dang house because first of all, I'm not your maid. Y'all are all big enough to wash dishes, to cook, to mop, to sweep, take out the trash, all of that good stuff. And there's enough of y'all that y'all can get it done. Right. Because I'm holding down the household by working and doing all I need to do. So now y'all just at the house, y'all need to do what y'all need to do. And so, um, (laughs) what ends up happening the next day? And this is, This is one of my favorite scenes. Okay, so the kids get a rude awakening when they're woken up by their angry mother, Carolyn, who is pissed that they did not do any cleaning last night that she told them to do. So this causes her to have to like round them all up and pretty much force them to do the chores since they didn't do it on their own. And she starts getting pushed back from the kids, but she's still standing her ground. She's not going to let up because she not only does she you know, these kids do need to have law and order, but at the same time, it's just like, this is teaching y'all discipline. This is teaching y'all that when y'all get your own house, y'all going to be able to manage it. And so, you know, this is, this is also a life lesson. So this isn't just a punishment, like just do it because I feel like it, but it's teaching them in the long run, how they can be able to manage their house, how they will be able to clean a dish. They'll be able to take out the trash and, you know, so on and so forth. So that that's our freaking mess so that's a whole scene where you know we're we're seeing just the mom and the kids and how she uh interacts with them as far as when they don't listen to her and stuff like that so then we end up um like a scene later we see a more softer side of carolyn and she's having a more intimate moment with troy and she ends up um asking her if she wants to stay with her aunt for the summer because they had mentioned that they wanted her to come over and at first she's like "Mm -mm, no i don't want to and then the mom was like basically like i'm gonna be working you know uh doing summer school and i don't want you running after your brothers because at the end of the day, she's a girl and she wants her to not feel like she has to be one of the boys. Like she wants to give her a break. Right. And, and this does end up happening later in the film, but, um, we continue to just see the day to day, you know, relationships and the dynamic she has with her brothers, um, her trying to find her own space. And then also her witnessing the deterioration of her parents' relationship.
right? Um, now, see, this movie, I have a hard time just, because normally I'm like, okay, I get into the beginning of it, get up to the major plot point, but this movie isn't about, like, the beginning, the middle, the end, like, a plot twist, or it's not about this. Okay, to me, this movie is about showing the culture, right? Um, because we know people in, in New York, uh, somewhere like Brooklyn, that's a whole different world, right? If you go and someone in Brooklyn is not going to have the same experience as someone in Texas like me. It's a, it's a culture thing. And this movie to me is an experience for the viewer about a black family that has real raw emotions and you get to learn about their everyday dynamics of this working class family this big family that it's not stereotypical. It's not something where it's like, oh, the dad's a drug dealer and, you know, the mom was never there. You know, this is a real family. And, um, and it's just this music, this movie, this movie is just so, so beautiful to me. I love, 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 love. My mom showed me this movie when I was younger and I absolutely love it to this day. I love watching it. And, Music is a huge part of this film that it helps tell the story. It's and it's and the thing what I love about this movie is even though like, I, okay, I'm telling you it's about, okay, coming of age story. You know, it's not about this big plot twist. It's not about, you know, like what a typical script is going to bring you right or what you expecting. It's just like I said, it's an experience when you watch this movie. It's, it's learning about a different culture pretty much. And it's, it's just giving you this great, great, great dynamic between all of these wonderful people, between these parents and these children and their friends and other family members and people that they're growing up around. It's it's just absolutely amazing. And the music tells a, the music plays a huge part and they're not just playing scores or like moody instrumental sounds throughout the movie. It's actual soul R&B music that is so beautifully placed in almost every scene in the movie, but does not distract you at all. Well, at least I could only speak for me. It didn't distract me at all. It helped put you in the mood. It helped tell the story of what was happening in that moment and it was just the music oh my god like it's and and I and that's one of the major things I love about this movie is the music because I've literally discovered so much you know awesome music from this movie alone and I want to go over some of the uh standout tracks that are in this movie so we have people make the world go round by the stylistics Everyday People by Sly Stone, Respect Yourself, The Staple Sisters, Signed, Sailed, Delivered, I'm Yours by Stevie Wonder, Hey Joe by The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Pusher Man by Curtis Mayfield, I'll Take You There by The Staple Staple Sisters, Mr. Big Stuff by Gene Knight, Never Can Say Goodbye by Jackson 5, Rocksteady by Aretha Franklin, Ooh Child by Stan Vincent, Mighty Low by The Spinners, Ain't No Sunshine by Bill Withers, The Time Has Come Today, The Chamber Brothers, Pass the Peas by The JBs, and Sol Makosa by Menu DeBango. And so let me go into as far as performance wise. Now, um, watching this movie, like as I was trying to like get all my notes and stuff, Offrey Woodard gave me chills in one of the scenes and it it was the scene where she's gathering all of them up and she's getting on to them about, you know, not cleaning, you know, up the kitchen like she told them to. And okay, she has this brilliant balance between being this headstrong enforcer to showing this soft, intimate moments that she'll have, right? And she is so masterful with her range and level between each line that she says. She's always bringing like the pitch. I I don't even know if I know how to describe it properly, but the the only way I can think of saying it is just the levels. There are so many different levels in her dialogue that keeps it so interesting in everything she says. 
And not only are there these different levels there, but she also brings this realness, this rawness, and she makes it memorable. She makes you one, want to stare at her, want to hear what she's going to say, want to know where her next move is. And she is amazing in this movie. And I have like a newfound appreciation for her. Like, oh my God, she is so amazing in this movie. Um, in my opinion, Oscar worthy, but, um, it, oh my God, it's just, I hate sometimes I don't have certain words or know how to describe something, but she just was so, even though her type of character, to me, it was like beautifully eloquent. Like it was almost like kind of poetry and she just, oh my God. And this was my first uh, movie I've ever seen Alfre Woodard in. And this is my favorite. <laughs> I don't think she's going to do another movie for me that's going to top this. Like, this is my favorite movie she's ever been in. Now, as far as um, Delroy Lindo, he was super likable. He was brilliant as well. He brought... It, it was a softer side than who she was because he was the more lenient one. Um, but what he, but you can't forget him either. He stands out as well. And their dynamic was so good together. Even though she was more headstrong, he was more lenient, more level-headed or even-tempered. There you go. That's He was more even-tempered than she was. He still brought it. And you still remembered him. You still wanted to see him on screen. You still wanted to know how he was going to react with how she, like, how was he going to react to her reaction type of deal. And also the children, there was five small children that we were dealing with in this movie and they all worked so well together. You all, you believe they were all siblings and sometimes you don't get that great like with families, yes, like you'll have some kids that kind of stand out. Some kids were, I mean, they're kids at the end of the day, but they're kind of like, how would you say it? Not like robotic, but you could tell it's a child acting, if that makes sense. And I felt like their dynamic, what they did also working along with Delroy and Alfrey was awesome. So, so awesome. All right, so let me go into this uh, cast that we have here. So we have Alfrey Woodard, who plays Carolyn. She was in Captain America Civil War and Heart and Souls. So fun fact there, she's been in two movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr. And I thought that was interesting. We have Delroy Lindo, who plays Woody. He was in The Five Bloods and Malcolm X. We have David Patrick Kelly, who plays Tony I slash Jim. He was in The Crow and Warriors. So if you've seen The Warriors, he's uh, known for that famous line where he's clanking the bottles together. Warriors, come out to play. All right, now we have uh, Zelda Harris, who plays Troy. She was in He Got Game and The Babysitter's Club. We have Carlton Williams, who plays Clinton. He's known for this movie, Crooklyn. Uh, we have Sharif Rashid, who who plays Wendell. He was in the Soprano series and The Shield. Uh, we have Timoch Washington, who plays Joseph. He was in Chasing Amy and um, in an episode of Law and Order. We have Isaiah Washington, who plays Vic. He was in Grey's Anatomy and Romeo Must Die. We have Spike Lee, who plays Snuffy. He was in Do the Right Thing and Mo Better Blues. Now, one thing you're going to know about Spike is he is going to be in his movies. He's in, if I'm not mistaken, all of his movies he's ever written. He he has given himself a part. He he may be like a supporting character, but he always has a part. Uh, then we have Frances Foster, who plays Aunt Song. She was in Clockers and Malcolm X. We have Norman Matlock, who plays Clem. He was in Taxi Driver and Ghostbusters. We have Christopher Knowings, who plays Nate. He was in Vanilla Sky. And doesn't that sound familiar? Vanilla Sky, we had the other actors who were, a bunch of them were in Vanilla Sky. And Christopher Knowings from this movie was in it as well. That was super cool. And to be honest, I didn't even realize that connection until just now. So that's awesome. And he was also in the movie Youth. Then we have Evelka Reyes, who plays Jessica. Um, she played in the Martin series and in the movie Nash Bridges. 
Okay. Now, this this is another cool connection thing here. So we have one movie that is like a semi-autobiographical movie uh, based on the director and writer's life. And this is the same concept, okay? So this film is loosely based on the lives of Spike Lee and his siblings who helped co-write the script as well. Uh, according to Delroy Lindo, he was very intimidated by working with children as he had not worked with children before and did not have his own children at the time. But if you watched the movie, you would have never known. You thought he would been, he's the cool parent. Like he was a dad. He, I believed every second that he was their dad and that he loved those kids. He cared about them kids and he wanted nothing but the best for him. So that's called acting for you. Um, and then we have um, basically Spike Lee's sisters who originally wrote the script as a pilot for Nickelodeon. And they actually did a test pilot uh, where they screened they screened it for inner city children who actually disliked it. And so basically the leads converted their idea into a screenplay, which is what we got Crooklyn, which I'm so glad they did. Now, although no specific year is revealed at any point in the movie, the events of the movie were almost likely intended to take place in the spring and summer of 1973 for the following concrete reasons. So one, the eldest son Clinton, who was a New York Knicks fan, chose to attend the final game of NBA Finals instead of his father's concert. He half hardly told his family afterward that the Knicks won. And the only year the Knicks won in the 1970s were in 1970 and 73. But uh, we have number two, Soul Train. The TV show to which the kids were seen dancing towards the end of the film made its national television debut in 1971 thereby eliminating the possibility that Clinton attended the 1970 NBA final. So to conclude that, we're going to basically be saying that more than likely it took place, like they said, in 1973. Now, none of the children on set had any idea how to play any of the strict games their characters engaged in, and Lee had to personally instruct them. And I would probably be in the same boat because I wouldn't know what the heck to do either because I couldn't even name the freaking games that they showed in the beginning. So I can only imagine how they felt. And that movie has my heart as well. I love, I could not wait to talk about Crooklyn. I love, love, love that movie. And I'm so excited I got to finally talk about it. So that made me super, super happy. And you know what, guys, that is all I have um, for this episode. So if you enjoyed the movies we talked about today, let me know. Comment. Tell me if you have or haven't seen the, mo the movies. Let me know what you think about what you've heard about the movies. So go ahead and like the episode to let me know I'm not just talking to myself. And if you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to get updates whenever I post a new episode. And that's it. That's all I got, guys. Now, the show is over. The credits are rolling. And wait, happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, Dila Day. Happy birthday to me, even though it's well over, guys. But why not? All right. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to let you go and I will see you at the next show time.